Hi, I'm Cupthorne MacDonald, and this Wisdom Page podcast episode is titled The Need for Wisdom. The content is adapted from Chapter 5 of my book, Toward Wisdom. I have called the fundamental reality energy-awareness, but being is more than just its active and receptive aspects. Were it not so cumbersome, I might have called the fundamental reality energy awareness guidance or energy awareness intelligence. Intimately associated with energy and awareness is intrinsic knowledge that makes a guiding contribution to every event in the universe and the whole evolutionary process. This built-in intelligence consists of all the laws of nature, the values of all the universal constants, and possibly more. In evolution, chance plays its part by setting up novel informational situations. Chance helps determine what specific potentials will be actualized. But it's this built-in guiding intelligence, this array of procedures, this matrix of recursive algorithms, that has established the potential for all happenings and guides their unfolding. The universe is clearly an information processor, though very different from computers of human design. The typical desktop computer runs one program at a time in serial fashion. You put information in, the information gets manipulated or processed in accord with the program's algorithm, its intrinsic plan, and the computer sends the changed information out. In the information processing cosmos, each physical situation, regardless of location, is input information, and each law of nature is a program, a functioning algorithm. But unlike the desktop computer that processes its data in serial fashion, the programs that guide the universe all function at the same time in parallel. These laws of nature algorithms operate everywhere, simultaneously, continuously. It's parallel data processing in the extreme. Because of this ongoing activity, the informational pattern of the universe constantly changes. An informational situation inherited from the previous instant gets turned into a new informational situation by the operation of various laws of nature. The process never rests. In the next instant, the new pattern is subjected once again to that whole matrix of algorithms. And to the extent that the algorithms dictate, again, the pattern changes. For the past 13 plus billion years, the algorithms that underlie and define the laws of nature have been applied again and again and again to every informational situation everywhere in the universe. It's still happening, and it's called evolution. I ask you to consider the possibility that the present era marks the beginning of a new phase in the evolutionary process. Evolution's first phase was characterized by the chance and necessity variety of evolution just described. Evolution did its thing, blindly but effectively creating and optimizing. 
Phase 1 evolution was extremely slow, but effective if you had time to wait. In particular, Phase 1 techniques enabled the human body to evolve. With its sophisticated brain, its mobility, and its marvelous hands that can manipulate materials. The question I put to you is this. Haven't these advanced capabilities themselves now become agents of evolution? For better or worse, haven't human capabilities moved evolution, here on Earth at least, into an entirely new phase? Evolution in this second phase is mind-directed evolution. With the arrival of phase two, evolution no longer gropes forward blindly and automatically. Human eyes and the human brain have given the process perceptual and conceptual sight. With its great power and speed, phase two evolution now overrides the creeping along phase one process. Phase 1 evolution continues, but in those parts of the universe, such as Earth, where Phase 2 capabilities exist, it must take a back seat as a cause of change. Some years ago, we humans started to practice this new style of evolution. We've already seen how rapidly things can be changed compared with the old way, and we've begun to see the dangers, too. The root problem is that Phase 2 projects are being directed by Phase 1 minds. The harnessing of nuclear fission is one example. The negative impact of our high-tech lifestyle on the environment is another. And today we are going full speed ahead in the field of genetic engineering. I suspect that there is nothing intrinsically wrong with nuclear energy, technology augmented comfort, and genetic engineering. Nothing wrong if pursued by wise people acting with utmost caution in accord with the highest aims and values. But that's not the way it's been happening. With phase one minds and values guiding the process, the risks are great. In the view of many people today, unless this changes, unless the minds doing the directing are themselves guided by wisdom's values, phase two on this planet is sure to be short-lived and a disastrous failure. Sophisticated brains, mobility, and the ability to manipulate materials were necessary before phase two could begin. But they weren't all that was necessary. Phase two also requires material sufficiency, a standard of living that gives large numbers of people the time, energy, and support systems needed for creativity. Hungry people grubbing for survival are not likely to design silicon chips, conduct experiments in genetic engineering, or create great art. We humans are equipped with a wide array of mental potentials. The potentials evoked in the past under conditions of material scarcity, greed, hate, anger, etc., help the species survive. They prodded human beings to move toward material sufficiency. Now, with a basic level of material support in place in many parts of the world, those values and mind states hinder rather than help. Having served a useful purpose in phase one, they have now become counterproductive in phase two. 
Noisy, reactive, pain-filled phase one minds are still the human norm. Despite this, whole societies of humans are attempting to get on with phase two activities. It won't work. To help us appreciate this, I'd like to relate our data to a metaphor. The universe as a work of art, a work created by the universal process and its subsystems, and appreciated in the minds of those subsystems. Before Roger Sperry did his split-brain studies, it was commonly felt that there were two types of people, logical, rational, practical people, and sensitive, creative, but impractical people. The tacit assumption was that logic and rationality were in conflict with openness, sensitivity, and creativity. You faced a trade-off. If you develop one set of qualities, you would necessarily lose the other. Then along came left-brain, right-brain theory that associated each of these sets of qualities with its own hemisphere of the brain's neocortex, and the assumptions changed. If rational thought and logic originated primarily in the left hemisphere, and creativity and artistic sensitivity originated primarily in the right, then there was no conflict and no need for a trade-off. What a freeing idea. Just because we had in the past developed one side of ourselves, one set of qualities, one brain hemisphere, didn't mean that we could not now develop the other. In fact, when you look back at history and thought about people like Leonardo da Vinci, it was obvious that there had always been at least a few people who had developed both and who deserve to be called complete, fully developed human beings. With that prologue in mind, let's now move to the metaphor itself. First, what's the purpose of art? The purpose, as I understand it, is to cause, through the generation of physical works, a qualitative change in the perceiver's conscious experience. My impression is that all good art uplevels our experience in some way. Either it produces uplifting feelings, or it helps us to know something or see something more clearly. Enhanced subjective experience is the goal of the art process. The work that triggers the intellectual-slash-emotional experience is an expression in some physical medium. It might be a medium with a memory like paint and canvas, or paper and ink, or film or it might be an ephemeral medium, like a stage in moving players, or waves of air pressure coming from musical instruments. An enhanced inner experience is the desired result. The work is the physical means by which that state is brought about, and of course it is the artist who creates the work. To create the work, the artist employs two general aptitudes or skills. I will call them holistic seeing, right hemisphere stuff, according to many people, and technical ability, which they associate with the left. In the transformative vision, Jose Arguelles called them psychic impulse and technique. Each artist possesses these aptitudes to differing degrees. Some artists have little technical skill. They rely a lot on trial and error, randomness. An extreme case I once heard about was the prize-winning painting done by a chimpanzee. 
I assume the chimp had little control over his doing and very little ability to see holistically. But I also assume that the chimp produced many paintings. And I assume that someone who could see sorted through them and picked out the one that had a prize-winning arrangement of brushstrokes. There are artists who have a good eye and succeed because they throw a lot of stuff away. There are also artists with considerable technical ability but no well-developed ability to see holistically. They often create pleasing works but they don't create profound works. We admire their skill but their works don't move us. The great artists have two highly developed cerebral hemispheres. Keeping this limited overview of art in mind, let's consider the cosmic situation in which we find ourselves. The metaphoric parallels seem to be there. Minds capable of appreciating do exist. Your mind and mine and minds at all levels in the hierarchy of earthly life. A work exists. The universe and of particular interest to you and me, this local portion of it, our planet. Also, a process capable of producing, developing, and refining that work exists. The evolutionary process, including its latest local agents, quote, artists, unquote, like you and me. Let's see where this metaphor takes us. Although the universe's reason for existing may not be the creation of uplifted states of mind, that notion doesn't seem totally far-fetched. Mental up-leveling is and has been the focus of much activity. An observable trend of evolution is the development of increasingly sophisticated minds, minds capable of increasingly rich mental experience. Then, too, when I think about what we humans have been doing in our bumbling, inept, quasi-random way throughout history, I say to myself, hey, all along we've been trying to enhance subjective experience. You and I spend much time doing things. We modify the physical world around us in countless ways. And although we may not think about it, doesn't most, if not all, of that doing have the same aim as art? to affect our state of mind? Don't we grow food, smoke cigarettes, build bridges, commit crimes, paint pictures, and save whales, all in the service of someone's subjective experience, usually our own? True, most of us now and then sacrifice our personal enjoyment for periods of time. But when we make such a sacrifice, isn't it in the hope of enhancing our own enjoyment later? or the hope of enhancing the enjoyment of another being? It seems that everything I've done today, from going to the toilet when I first got up this morning, to speaking these words, was dedicated to enhancing someone's subjective experience. In this sense, we do treat the world around us as an artist treats a work of art. That is, we do things in it and to it in hopes that the changed physical situation will enhance mental experience. Was there a psychic impulse or holistic vision behind the universe? I see the evolutionary trends toward intelligence and other forms of sophisticated function as evidence of a loose, unfocused vision built right into the cosmic process. 
into the matrix of recursive algorithms that guide it. It strikes me as a gradually refining vision, one that takes specific form as time goes on, as entities evolve, and as those algorithms operate on more complex informational situations. Technique, too, appeared primitive in the beginning. The early process comes across as a rather unskilled artist. We know, however, that although the process is slow and fraught with failed experiments, it has produced amazing results. Recently, its capabilities got a large potential boost when it sprouted artist agents in human form. The big pluses that we humans bring to the process are greatly increased speed and the ability to work in media other than the carbon-based chemistry of life. Media such as silicon-based microelectronics, for example. For a long time, most human energy was needed just to survive. Then, between two and a half and three thousand years ago, groups of people in both the West and the East focused on self-development. Those in the Western world set about developing their rational side. They developed techniques and analytical, rational thought processes. They concentrated on developing the ability to do. At the same time, those in the East set about developing their intuitive side. They worked out procedures for seeing and understanding in more holistic, intuitive ways. They concentrated on developing the ability to see. We know what happened in the West. We know the tale of our industrialization and over-industrialization, our development and over-development, our utilization of resources and over-utilization of resources. With the best intention of improving our work of art, the results have been, charitably speaking, mixed. A chemical plant may enhance the subjective experience of the stockholders at dividend time, and perhaps my subjective experience if those chemicals make soles for my shoes. But it also may do great harm to the subjective experience of the thousands of people who live nearby or down the river from it. What went wrong? Our metaphor is telling us that we've been messing around with a promising and already beautiful work of art, an emerging masterpiece, without bothering to become authentic artists first. We got good at technique, but we're still not worth a damn at holistic seeing. We've done many things well, but too often the wrong things. Our metaphor points to the obvious. To avoid messing up our global work of art any further, we need to become competent artists. We're only half artists now. To become whole, we need to develop that other side of ourselves. And for most of the doers in Western society, the technically skilled ones, the decision makers, that other side is the intuitive, holistic seeing side. We can start by looking at the experts and borrowing their techniques. From the East, we can learn meditation and other spiritual practices. From the West, we can learn how our most creative people go about seeing. We can learn the value of solitude and quiet-mindedness, staple techniques of artists, and try to incorporate them into our lives. We can also make a conscious attempt to free ourselves 
from psychological hang-ups and cultural biases that distort our perceptions. Most of us are already fairly knowledgeable. Isn't our next task to become wise? As we've seen, our perceptions and memories are dealt with at various times by three key types of brain process. Ancient brain, intellect, and intuition. Each of these processes is capable of directing the human system and determining what a person does. Ancient brain programming was appropriate for controlling behavior in pre-civilized marginal circumstances, but it's not appropriate for more civilized sorts of living. When we, as children and societies, became civilized, quote-unquote, cultural values took control. In our industrial cultures, rationality became the primary mode of mental functioning. Rationality in the surface of the culture's dominant values. These values included material production and consumption, the acquisition of factual knowledge, participation in cultures, projects, and institutions, and pursuing the fruits of narcissistic individualism such as wealth, power, status, fame, etc. Now again, it's time for a transition. Intuitive, wisdom-guided knowledge is the appropriate mode for the post-industrial millennial era, for the mind-directed phase of the evolutionary process. The possibility exists for each of us to become an artist in life, a wise person, a complete human being. Once we have done this, we, as person-shaped outcrops of universal process, can take full advantage of our short opportunity to add something to the universal work of art. We can enhance it for ourselves, for the other sensitive nodes of process who currently share the planet with us, and for those who come after. It really is possible to go through all three of these stages in a lifetime. When we were two years old, our ancient brains were in control much of the time. Parents and school pushed us, often unwillingly, through our first transition into the more civilized, more rational world of late childhood and adulthood. The second transition from cultural control to wisdom control can't be pushed. It is strictly voluntary and at times arduous. The impediments to wisdom are real, but not insurmountable. In future podcasts, I'll discuss ways and means of getting past them. I would like to become one of the change agents of this new era, a fully prepared, highly effective, phase two evolutionary, one of those special people who have managed to become wise and free as well as knowledgeable. What specifically am I looking for? What kind of person is it that I would like to be? The description that follows is my current image of these all-too-rare people. This is how I view their mindsets and modes of functioning, their approach to problem-solving and social transformation. First, they have a wide, value-centered view of the problem. So often readily available solutions to problems are not discovered because the problem itself has been defined too narrowly. 
people I'm talking about, the wise and effective ones, start with the widest possible goal. They want to see the entire world process up-leveled. There is some specific situation calling for action, but they see that situation in context, in the broadest possible context. They see the problematique, the larger problem matrix of which the present problem is just a part. They intentionally look from many angles and many perspectives. They are intensely interested in how the situation came to be and what maintains it. They gather as much data as possible, but hold that data tentatively, remaining open to new data and fresh perspectives. Second, they have an extraordinary openness to possible solutions. The essence or core may not be negotiable, the value-centered part, but everything else is, and there are no unnecessary side issues complicating things, no committed-to ideology to maintain, no prior analysis that is sacrosanct, no fixed mindset or point of view, no divisions where there needn't be any, and no opponent. Ignorance, delusion, reactivity, and bad programming are the only opponents. There is no us against them, just a situation that must be enhanced and up-leveled. This means that there's no need for retribution and no difficulty allowing those who have entrenched positions to save face, if that is possible. Third, they have an intense desire to find a solution. These people do not commit themselves lightly to a cause. They realize the preciousness of the body-mind's brief moment as a player in the game of existence. They are playing in earnest and want their moment to count for as much as possible. Fourth, they have little personal vulnerability. Because in their view, what the brain puts out is just stuff to ignore or act upon as the wisdom dictates, it is difficult to push their buttons, since even the death of the body is not viewed as the ultimate calamity, they are not easily controlled. They have learned how to maintain equilibrium and detachment, even in the midst of turmoil and threat. Next, they rely on the intuitive process for solutions. In wise and liberated people, it is the intuitive process that comes up with those hard-to-find answers and plays a major role in their decision-making. Intuition can do so because, one, the reactive and intellectual processes no longer dominate awareness and call the shots. The minds of these people are relatively quiet and uncluttered. Second, these people have spent years actively and open-mindedly searching for understanding. In the process, they have loaded their subconscious minds with much information about what is. Their intuitive processes, therefore, have a lot of valid data to draw on and integrate. Having mastered the art of maintaining a quiet mind, they listen for communications from the wisdom. Their intellectual models of reality are lightly held and subject to change, so they are open to intuitions that overturn present assumptions. They don't rush things. They are confident that if they cooperate with the process by keeping the mind quiet 
and by feeding it with all available data, an optimum answer will come. Finally, they continuously love and forgive. These people live compassionately. They see those they deal with as suffering beings, victims of inappropriate conditioning or programming by genes, culture, and life circumstances. When they look at someone, they see being and its high values clothed in informational garments that don't fit, garments that obscure and distort the innate potential. What others call evil, they see as unskillfulness and misdirection, the product of informational and algorithmic errors. Many of today's issues aren't simple. To try to simplify them, to pull them out of their complex context and consider them in isolation won't result in adequate solutions. There is hope that someday computer modeling will come of age and be a significant help in problem analysis and problem solving. But the best problem-solving system around today is a person who is intelligent and wise, informed, open, and attentive. One who has looked widely, has seen, and has fed the intuitive process with all that it needs to weigh, balance, sift, sort, and come up with a tentative answer. The sort of person just described. As I consider the characteristics of these people and the global situation, an ethical imperative arises. Become wise. Become wise despite the lack of support from our present culture. Become wise despite all the impediments and seductions that inevitably get in the way. For doesn't everything that's worthwhile follow naturally and organically from wisdom? we are wise, then ethical dilemmas vanish. We simply do what needs to be done. If we are wise, then we're ready for phase two. That ends the thoughts on the need for wisdom that I presented in chapter five of my book, Toward Wisdom. Thanks for listening, and check out the many wisdom-related resources available on the wisdom page. It's at www.cop.com. I'll spell that out, www.cop.com. Bye for now.